good morning. Good morning, and to everyone who contributed to such a wonderful morning at the Rock 5K, and on behalf of Winston-Salem Rescue Mission, thank you. Thank you so much. Once again, you came together for three objectives, to raise funds and awareness for a local partnered ministry. You came together to host a community-wide, family-friendly event for those who we hosted that came on our campus and we could share and show the love of Christ. And you also celebrated the 2023 Run for God graduates who had begun their journey back in February with our weekly meetings. And so we say thank you to all of you who uh, participated and contributed to that. I will, I will tell you, I am biased, as some of you know, especially excited about those Run for God uh, folks. You know, what's so exciting is that a lot of times uh, many of them come and this is their first 5K or at least their first 5K in a long time. And so there's some uncertainty, there's some trepidation, can I do this? And we try to set them at ease, we try to give them some confidence with this little three-word motivational phrase that we repeat early and often. We simply say, trust the plan. Yes, trust the plan. And what we see is that by trusting the plan, we, uh, even in our uncertainty, even in our doubt, even in our struggles, we, uh, we find it counterintuitive, but we trust the plan and we make it to the finish line, despite how improbable that seemed uh, weeks before. Now, I know this, the physical race is important, but it's not nearly as eternally significant as the spiritual race. And so trusting the plan is also applied to our life in faith. Even when we struggle, even when it seems hard, even when we find it counterintuitive to how we might otherwise run our life, we trust God's plan for our life. This morning, we are going to wrap up this little short five-week series on the book of Job. It is a book that most often is associated with the questions and the complexities of human suffering. And yet this morning, what we are going to discover in these final chapters of the book of Job is that all along, it has actually had less to do with suffering and more to do with trusting the plan. And unlike the plans that you and I might make, our exercise plans or business plans or academic plans, the reason that we can have so much trust in this plan is because we know the infinite and unmatched wisdom of the planner. And so this, this morning, I'm going to give you a quick survey. Let's do the 30,000-foot look at the book of Job as we move to the conclusion of this book. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The opening verse and introduction to Job, we'll later go on to find that he was also a very successful man. He was wealthy. He had good health. He had a lot of livestock and a wonderful family. Life is going well for Job. And then one day, while God is uh, he's presiding over this heavenly council with heavenly beings, the Satan, or Satan, the slanderer, makes the allegation to God that Job only worships you. He's only blameless and upright because you have blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. 
And Satan says that if you were to stretch out your hand against him, touch all that he has, cause calamity and suffering, he will curse you to your face. So, God allows Satan to afflict Job. And I always felt like the appropriate response when we read that is, wait, what? Well, there's some questions there, right? A lot of questions. Why would God allow this? You mean Satan has access to God? Does God really not like Job? And guess what? Throughout the rest of the book of Job, we get no answers to those questions. But guess what? Part two. By the end of this morning, we'll see why that doesn't even matter. So Job is attacked. He loses his health. He loses his wealth, his family, everything. We find him sitting on a heap of ashes with boils and all alone, with the exception of his wife, who is really not very loving nor very righteous. In fact, she suggests that Job go ahead and do as Satan suggested he would and curse God. And yet, even in this, we'll read that Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In all of this, he did not sin with his lips. He did not curse him. He did not turn from him. He did not deny him. And it just points to the idea of how important it is to be anchored in our faith before the storm hits us. And so then, stage right, enter the friends of Job, who often we say with friends like these, who needs enemies? We read that these three friends heard all this evil that had come upon them. They came from their each place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. Well, initially, this is exactly what we would hope for. They seem very sympathetic, very helpful. But as these sympathetic friends gather around Job... Sit seven days in silence, and Job begins to speak. And when he does, this is how we see the structure of this book of Job. When he does, he initiates these three rounds of back and forth speeches that cover chapters 3 all the way to chapter 31. And interestingly, and importantly, these back and forth debates, they also usher in a stylistic change to the book of Job. We've moved from narrative or prose into the literary styling of poetry. And you say, well, why, why does that matter? Well, it matters because the historical account now of Job is going to be progressed forward with the language that is more expressive, sometimes metaphorical. It's steeped with imagery. It's used to enhance the tone and the emotion. In fact, this, this poetry that we're reading in the book of Job, one of the oldest books of the, of the Old Testament, it is so vivid and descriptive, particularly this morning in our final chapters, that many consider it some of the most beautiful of all the ancient Near Eastern literature. So read through it. We've, we've gone really quick, obviously not verse by verse, but do yourself a favor and read through Job with an eye to that increasing intensity. Because when we look at the increasing intensity, what we're going to see is all these rounds of speeches, the friends become intensely, intensively increasingly more accusatory of Job, blaming him for his suffering and offering really bad theology. And at the same time, Job is going to increasingly become more intense in his impatience and his frustration. 
not just with his friends, but with God. He even suggests that God might not know what he's doing. Even demanding an audience before God. We read in chapter 23 where he said, Today my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, God, and that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I want to give him a piece of my mind. I would know that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. Oh, listen, listen to this. No, he would pay attention to me. Ouch. We see where this is going, I think. It's spiraling out of control is what's happening throughout these 29 verses or chapters that we look at. And at that point, the young and brash, sometimes arrogant, Elihu steps into the conversation. He's the fourth friend. He says, I've been deferring this time to the older friends because out of respect, they are likely more wise than I. But he said, I've listened as long as I could. And you know what? Uh, these friends are totally lacking in wisdom. But I'm also angry at you, Job, because of your baseless accusations against God, cautioning Job against his attitude of entitlement before God. And so the bottom line is that Elihu is the only friend to rightly address the greatness of God and our inability to comprehend his reasons and his ways. We see this in chapter 36 where he says, How great is God beyond our understanding? Behold, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. This, this becomes really the basis of what he's trying to explain to Job and the friends. And that's really, at the end of the day, the book of Job, that is the answer to the test. That is the key that unlocks the mystery to this book. In addition, Elihu is setting the stage for God to expound on that simple yet highly profane, prof, oh, highly profound, wow, profound, highly profound. We profane God when we don't understand his greatness. So his highly profound truth of God's greatness in light of our limitations. Elihu's speech we can see in structure is the bridge. It's the bridge between the mostly crazy talk of Job and his friends and the true wisdom that God is speaking to Job. And so Elihu proclaims the majesty of God while pointing you and me to God, who is now last and ready to speak. And this is where we pick up this morning. And when I say that God is about to speak into this book and into Job's life, into this whole situation, I think we might initially think, whoo, finally, yes, here it comes, Job, all the answers. He, God's going to sweep down. He's going to give you a great big hug. He's going to forgive you for all your frustration, and everything is going to be all right. Let's see if that's what happens. Chapter 38, if you have your Bible, Again, Job, the Old Testament, just right before the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. Let's look at this introduction of God to Job, chapter 38, verse 1. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. If you look at the speech of Elihu just before this, Elihu is describing this coming storm. 
And here the Lord speaks out of this whirlwind, out of this storm. And he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Ooh, that might not be what we expected. On the surface, that seems kind of harsh. I mean, look at, I mean, Job's still in his suffering. Look what he's gone through, and God approaches Job in this way. Keep in mind, this is Job's own words. If God would just appear before me, I would explain to him why this is wrong and what he could do about it. Have you, have you ever heard the phrase, be careful what you ask for? This is that moment. And while Job, he never turned from God, critical, highly important, he remained strong in his faith of God. He did cross the line. He crossed the line by losing perspective of just exactly who it was he was addressing. And it's the crossing the line that warrants God's rebuke. Ultimately, it will be a lesson in humility by way of a renewed vision of who God is and Job's place before God. Who God is and our place before God. And see, this is, this is really at the heart of this morning, and I think it's if you pull sort of an application from the end and put it in the middle of the sermon, this is a reflection for us this morning. Do, do you and I ever cross the line with our attitudes toward God? Are we overly nonchalant or cavalier in our thoughts about God? Our words about God? I'd suggest that if the righteous, upright, blameless Job could cross the line then it's highly likely that you and I do from time to time as well. And really the most loving thing that God can do in those times is to rebuke us, to humble us, to renew our vision of who he is and put us in a proper place of reverence before God. God speaks in this. He says, who is this that clouds the truth with foolish opinions and worthless assumptions. I like how the Living Bible paraphrases this. Uh, it writes, it says, Why are you using your ignorance to deny my providence? That's pretty good, isn't it? Why are you using your ignorance to deny my providence? God then tells Job to, to stand up straight. Get ready for a confrontation, or as the King James Version translated, gird up your loins like a man. I like that too. I've told our Run for God group from time to time that one year, gird up your loins is going to be our seasonal theme. <laughs> that hasn't been received well, by the way. But <laughs> gird up your loins. It, it technically, this meant that you had to take your tunic and you tuck it into your belt so now you could be ready for battle. Now you could have movement. Now you could be prepared. And so God is saying, uh, Job, be ready. I'm turning the tables on you. Not only am I not answering your questions, I've got over 70 of them to ask you. Get ready to defend yourself. And as we think about this, this interrogation, really, let's, let's note the fundamental truth of what's going on here. Again, none of the questions will draw us any closer to an explanation on suffering. But they will provide Job, and again, all of us, something 
much more beneficial, something much more valuable. They provide a revelation of who God is and how we can fully trust him through our suffering. Job didn't know it at the time, but what he was being taught is that we need a revelation of God more than an explanation from God. That's hard to remember sometimes or to think about. And actually, you know, that's the great tension in this book of Job. A lot of folks will get to chapter 38 and discover that, hey, my questions are not being answered. I'm not sure I like this book very much. I don't understand how it's more necessary and more valuable to have an explanation or to have a, to have a revelation about God. How is that more necessary than for him to explain to me about my suffering and my trials in life? Now, part of that is the fallen human nature. We, we are curious. We want to have that mind like, like God. We want to know. We want to know. We want to know. But I think one of the reasons that it's difficult uh, to, uh, to do this, to understand this, to, to see that the revelation is more important than the explanation is that um, that's due to a gross miscalculation of how we, how we place God, how big he is, how powerful he is, how holy he is, how mighty he is, how great he is. That lack of awe and reverence toward God is often directly correlated to the preference we have for a God who's simply just a little bit bigger version of ourselves. Just a, a little bit holier, a little bit wiser, a little bit more powerful. And like it was with Job and his friends, it's the same for us. Our attempt to personal size or fun size God is an offense to God. So if, if, our, if our vision, your vision this morning needs a recalibration of who we are before God, our right place, as we begin these climactic final moments in Job, we have been invited to join God as he takes Job on the most extreme of virtual guided tours. Each tour, three of them, is going to include a highlight of an attribute of who God is and give us the reason that we can fully trust him and his plan for our life, even in our circumstances. So, again, we're looking at chapters 38 through 42, scratching the surface. Please go back and read these chapters for sure to get the full tour experience. Here we go. Tour 1, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 38. God is going to demonstrate his infinite power through his created world with a look at nature and the cosmos. We read, where, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, you seem to have all the answers, Job. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what, where, what were, were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The birth of the universe. The God of creation with an emphasis on the precision as a builder laying the foundation, taking the measurements, setting a cornerstone. Tell me, Job, you seem to have such great understanding and knowledge. Surely you must know how these things took place. Further, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? 
You know, I think about that, uh, those mornings, maybe you have some of those mornings like two in the morning, three in the morning, you're tossing and you're turning and you're thinking, ooh, if the sun would just come up, why can't it be morning already? I can't make that happen. You can't make that happen. Job can't make that happen. God says, I can make that happen. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for the time of trouble for the day of the battle of war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and the desolate land, to make the ground sprout with grass, the snow, the hail, the wind, the rain, the light, the grass, the ground. In essence, God is describing the seismic gap that exists between his infinite power and man's limited power. And in verses 31 through 33, that seismic gap is a cosmic gap. God will reference the constellations, the oldest book of the Old Testament perhaps. He's referencing the constellations that we still talk about, Pleiades and Orion and Makaroth and the bear and, the, and these uh, ordinances of the heavens and the stars. You know, I, uh, I read that there are, at this point, estimated 200 billion trillion known stars. That's a two with 26 zeros. I think that's a septillion. A septillion. 200. God placed them, ordered them with such precision that if our own solar system, the gravity in our solar system was stronger or weaker by one part in 10 to the 40th power, the sun could not exist. God says, see that? Surely you know how to do that. God spoke that into being. That's the power of our God. That's more than just simply a little bit bigger version of me. <laughs> Thankfully, right? Thankfully. Thinking of power. I haven't told anybody this. Everybody's leaning forward now. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I was out back where the F3 fitness group meets on Saturday mornings. And they've put up some chin-up bars and they've got these big tires and all kinds of stuff. And... Um, after I watched to make sure no one was looking, um, I thought I could do some chin-ups. <laughs> two of them. I got two of them. Now, I know a lot of you are a lot more powerful and strong than me, but our human strength, which is also failing every day, is immeasurable, comparable to that of God's. And here's the thing. Here's what God's making the connection with. That gap, that cosmic gap, seismic gap, the chasm that exists in power also exists in wisdom. Which makes much of what we would like to know about God or that we think we know about God beyond our understanding. Infinitely beyond our understanding. And that's okay. It's better than okay. Don't you want to know that your days are planned by an infinitely more wise God than you? And that's the lesson of the first tour. Now, by the way, if some of these verses, as you read through 38, sound familiar, we, we sang them earlier. The singer-songwriter Laura Story wrote Indescribable by, while reading Job 38 and 39 and 40. She said, and I quote, there is a part where Job starts complaining about God, so God stops him in his tracks. 
and says, where were you when I told the lightning bolts where to go? As I continued reading, I saw this profound theology of God's greatness and our call to be awestruck by it. That's good. That's great. All right. Tour two begins. God now takes Job on a tour of the animal kingdom, a zoological tour. He demonstrates his ability to sustain creation through his infinite care. And we'll read at the end of 39 or 38 into 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie and wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? On and on and on for most of chapter 39, God is going to go through nine different animals. From the most uh, honored of domesticated animals, the war horse, to the most unique of wild animals, the ostrich which is really pretty humorous if you read that one. He says, you know what? I admit, they're not really that smart. They, they don't even know how to cover up their eggs when they have them, and they just kind of leave them out for predators. But even in this silly, silly bird, I gave them this uh, ability. I equipped them with the ability to flee from their predators. He'll talk about the birds. He'll talk about some predators. And um, he's saying, Job, do you, do you under, understand enough to provide for my creation? Now, maybe, maybe you couldn't create my creation, but do you even sustain it? Can you provide for it? Do you know their life cycles? Do you know their inner workings? And of course, the answer is no. And by now, the message is becoming clear to Job. Without the knowledge of the working of God in nature, in cosmos, in animal kingdom, Job, do you really expect to have the knowledge of the spiritual workings of my world? Apparently, the message is coming through. It's being received because now Job has an opportunity to speak. Verse 1 of chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty, he who argues with God? Let him answer it. And Job answered, saying, Behold, I'm a small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. I love this. You know why? In a way, in a very small way, I wasn't standing before the God of the universe, but I kind of know this feeling. I don't know if you guys know this feeling or not, but particularly in my childhood where I may or may not have spoken out a turn, I may or may not have said things I shouldn't have said and received a well-deserved lecture. And in the middle of that lecture or after the lecture was over, I would get the, uh, well, young man, what do you have to say for yourself? nothing. <laughs> I, I, I kept my mouth shut. I knew I was in the wrong. And this is Job. This is where Job is now. In light of God's revelation, all those prior demands, think about it, all those questions he had, all those misunderstandings, um, they've become irrelevant. They're unnecessary to Job. It's, it's also a good lesson here, what God's teaching Job, is it's best to say nothing else about what you don't understand. And that's probably pretty good advice for all of us anyway. That's pretty good practical advice. And so that tour ends, and Job keeps getting a hint of what God's trying to reveal to him. And he says, all right, I want to show you one more thing, Job, a final tour. Chapters 40 and 41. 
God is going to demonstrate his sovereign control over the most chaotic of creatures. And so in this passage, we're introduced to two of the most massive, destructive, ferocious, fearless creatures. We begin in 4015, the first one, Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you. Literally, Behemoth, the beast, beast, God's creation. It will be described as one with unmatched power, one unmatched strength above all creation and all other creatures. God will later say, behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? In other words, Job, I'm giving you this, remember poetic language, I'm giving you this picture of this great beast who just stands against the current, as rough and as, as swift as it is, and is unmovable. And in fact, he is so massive and unmovable that no human dares to even snare him or capture him. The first of the chaotic creatures. The second that God describes in in chapter 41 is the Leviathan. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who can come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? I love that. Beautiful. Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields. Also say about scales. Shut up closely as with a seal. So there's this watertight aspect of this beast. Whatever this is. And so uh, it goes throughout chapter 41. Ferocious, uncontrollable creature. That no human desires or dares to bridle, to tame. But to God, he'll say, you know what? These guys are like house pets to me. The Leviathan and the behemoth, really fascinating. You should know, too, that there's always been a level of disagreement, uh, even amongst biblical translators and interpreters, on what exactly is being spoken of here. Is, Is the behemoth a hippopotamus, an elephant, or some sort of mythical super beast? Is the Leviathan a crocodile or a shark or some kind of fantastical sea creature? And there are, there are good arguments for all of those. But ultimately, what these creatures are doesn't matter the slightest in the lesson to Job. Rather, these creatures are pointing us. God's using the imagery to point us to the fact that even among the most chaotic and untamable circumstances of creation, the ones that seem too dangerous for us, that nobody dares go into, that even they are contained by God. And so the point is that God's sovereign control over this world is absolute, is perfect. What seems wild and out of control to us is always contained by God. And so if we know that, it goes to reason, A, B, 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 C, A, C. It goes to reason we can have great confidence in the sovereign control of our life, even when and especially when we don't understand the chaos. So Job is restored, and he answers God first. And part of his restoration is really the, the revelation before it is his health and wealth and family. He says, I know, 
I know, almost like I, I do know, I really did know this God, but now I really know you can do all things. No purpose of yours is thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He goes back and repeats what God had asked him. He says, I remember you asked me this. You know my answer now, God? Oh, I, I uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. That was me. I shouldn't have said anything. And then he says, here, uh, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Again, what did God ask him? And he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, the prophet Isaiah, he had a vision where he came before the Lord seated on his throne. And he said, woe is me. Basically, I'm not worthy. I think the response from Job here is very similar. Except maybe it's woe is me and wow is God. And, and my suggestion is that for any of us that are still stuck on, why? Why did God do this to Job? Please hear Job in this passage. It's okay. Let it go. I'm so much better off now. I thought I knew God before, but my eyes have been opened and now I truly know God. And notice that at this point, he's still sitting squarely in his suffering. Nothing has changed about his circumstances. None of his questions were answered. He is still broken and desperate. But now he is content in the knowledge that the great God of the universe is in control of his situation. And that's enough. And so the book closes. God does eventually restore those things in his life that he had lost. And while God does still work in this way, we do know by the full counsel of Scripture that earthly restoration of health and wealth is never promised. The only promised end to our suffering is the eternal healing and wholeness that we will experience one day. The Apostle Paul even makes this more clear in the New Testament when he said, while, while, while you and creation are groaning in the suffering continually because of sin, because of evil in this world, take heart, be encouraged. Those present sufferings are not worth comparing to the future glory. And maybe he had in mind some of Job here as well. Take heart. It's not a comparison. The better than before restoration of all things, that future glory, the promised end of all suffering, it will be here before we know it. For us personally or for the church collectively. Take heart. God's plan is perfect. The book of Job, it's so misunderstood and it's so, so rich and so good. And as we close this morning, I do want to make this point as part of the, the wrap-up here. I know for a fact there are many, I've seen your faces already this morning, in this room who are living with serious, painful, heartbreaking trials and sufferings. I want you to hear that out of the lesson of Job, the principle of God desiring us to trust him fully in our suffering, it is still perfectly aligned with God's desire to hear our desperate prayers for rescuing us from that suffering. For God to bear our burdens, to give us great peace and relief. I truly believe that in this, God is instructing us to be content in him while we suffer, 
But that's not the same thing as remaining content in our suffering. And so we pray with each of you. We pray for healing and reconciliation and full restoration. And if you find that difficult, which I think is pretty normal, pretty natural, to trust God's plan fully in the hurt, I wanted to suggest a resource, maybe a timely resource for us this morning, titled Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Pastor Tim Keller. Many of you might know of Tim Keller, but was a highly respected pastor, author, teacher at um, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. He recently passed away the last few days, but he, uh, he battled uh, several cancer diagnoses in his life, and he wrote this really coming out of one of them and has built on it over the years, and I think, that, I think you will find it helpful. And last, which I pray will be helpful, a story. The story of Corey Ten Boom is documented in the book, The Hiding Place. She was living in German-occupied Holland during World War II. The Ten Boons family had become a home for uh, those Jews looking to escape Nazi capture, a hiding place of sorts. Eventually, she and most of her family were caught, and she was sentenced to a notoriously harsh concentration camp in Ravensbrück, Germany. While surrounded by death and torture and sickness and abuse and no telling what she saw every day in that camp, she committed herself to studying scripture, sharing the Bible, and praying with fellow prisoners. She was very blessed to have come out of the camp alive when she did. And so over the years, she would tell the story after the war. It's a story that would introduce thousands and thousands to Jesus Christ. And almost every time that she did, she would hold up this embroidery as representative of her life. She would say, and I want to quote from her this morning, Does God always grant us what we ask in prayers? Not always. Sometimes he says, no. That's because God knows what we do not know. And I trust him to know best. This is what I saw, what I lived, the knots representing chaos and pain. But out of those same threads, and she'd turn it around, this is what God saw. And one day, I will see my chaotic life, my suffering, from his side also. And I will thank him for all of it. May we know and live out that same perspective. Let us pray this morning. Lord, we, we pray that uh, you would show us, as you showed Job, your glory and your greatness. Lord, we pray that you would allow us to know you in ways that are beyond the limitations that we have set of you and on you. When we're confused in our suffering, Lord, when we're moved to anger or bitterness and hurt, we pray that you would just give us strength, that you would reassure us in the fact that we can fully trust you, that you would remind us of your faithfulness and your goodness. Lord, we do pray that you hear our prayers, that you heal our illnesses, Lord, that you give us relief, that you mend our relationships, and that you alone will receive the praise and honor for us. Lord, show us your mercy and allow us to know your presence. And we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.